0: one and
1: only Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Hi, this is David Ghosty-Wills, and welcome to episode 32 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in chronological order. This month, we're joined by Ian Purden, one of the admins of the highly esteemed Shadow Music website, to discuss the Shadow single, The Rise and Fall of Flingle Bunt, backed with It's a Man's World, and the LP, Dance with the Shadows, both released in 1964. But first, a little news. Remember back on our Christmas episode, Mark Cunningham and I were speculating about the kind of releases we could expect in 2024. I didn't think we'd be getting an answer so quickly. Uh, We're getting a double live CD of Cliff in the Shadows The Final Reunion, an audio companion to the 2009 DVD release. This release has seemingly come out of nowhere, but I'm all for it. You know, it's an historic document and it needs to be out there and it's extremely entertaining. So let's not forget that part too. April 19th, 2024. That is when we can expect that DVD. uh, I'm sorry, CD release. We already had the DVD release. This is the CD release. All right. Let's hear some listener reactions to our last episode, our tribute to Licorice Locking with his sister, Babs Wilson. Jen Eastall writes, Thanks, David, for another great episode. Enjoying number 31. Brian's sister, Babs, is so lovely. Listening reminded me that I attended the 2003 Shadow Mania North America in Toronto, headlined by Bruce and Brian and Phil Kelly. The three came from the UK without a drummer, so Bruce chose one from one of the many other bands that performed. What a special weekend that was. Their set is on YouTube in three parts, and she links to those three parts. And again, it's another reason why you should head on over to our Facebook page for We Say Yeah, because there's so much great stuff on there. Thanks so much, Jan. Tim Cooper writes, Thanks for another great episode. I always learn something new. I must admit, I never knew where the licorice in Brian's name came from before. And I certainly didn't know why you were called Ghosty before either. Yeah, I figured I'd get around to telling that story at some point on the podcast. Over on X Twitter, That Guy Sigh wrote, Funny you should mention Summer Holiday as a Christmas song again. On Hank Marvin's solo album, Hank Plays Cliff, he covers it as an instrumental, but the synth effect used sounds like some kind of Christmas jingle bell. Worth a listen, as it's well played and arranged. Thanks so much that guy Sai and finally Old Fan 59 left a five star review over on Apple Podcasts which we encourage you to do because it really helps out the show Old Fan 59 writes fantastic show giving great insight into Cliff's career it's the mostest Thanks so much for all of your reaction and responses to last month's episode. Even if we don't have time to read all of them on the show, they're very much appreciated. And if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can send me an email. It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. Join us on Facebook. Just look for We Say Yeah. And follow us on X Twitter at We Say Yeah Pod. Now, before we get to our main topic today. Remember how last year there was all this drama going on in my life about my passport and there was an error made on it and will I get it in time before my London trip and the deadline was approaching? Well, now there's new drama. (laughs) Um, The owner of the condo I've been renting for the past or nearly the past two years has decided to sell it. So it means I have to very abruptly move out. Now, I generally bank a bunch of shows in advance. In other words, I try to record several programs ahead of time in case there's a calamity like this that might interrupt our schedule of every month because the last thing I want is for the show to go on some kind of hiatus for a little while. There's nothing worse. If you're a fan of a podcast and you listen to it and you look forward to it and it's on kind of a schedule and you're used to it appearing in your feed – when you expect it. The worst thing on earth is for it to suddenly go away with no explanation. So I'm just working very hard to prevent that from happening. I mean, I've got a big move and a lot of things I have to put in storage and oh, it's a big mess. But um, hopefully we will be back next month with another episode. All right, on to this month's episode. I had a great time chatting with Ian Purden about the Dance with the Shadows LP, an underappreciated album in my opinion. And I should tell you that recently I came into possession of many mono and alternate mixes of Shadows tracks. However, for these purposes, all of the clips you're going to hear are the stereo versions from the early years Shadows box set. I began our conversation by asking Ian, how did you discover... The Shadows, or Cliff in the Shadows. Well,
2: it was all a big mistake, actually. As a child, there was a TV program for kids I used to watch at tea time, and there was a guy on it called Bert Whedon. Uh, He was a well-known guitarist of the day, and actually he'd written a book. For people like me who were trying to teach themselves to play the guitar it was called play in a day <laughs> anyway Bert in one show played this tune called apache which i really liked and i asked my dad could we buy that record Well, being the kind of guy my father was he went to the record shop and listened to all the versions of apache they had in stock and he came back with the one that he thought was best I was furious with it. This isn't Bert Whedon, I said. It's not what I asked for at all. It was, of course, The Shadows. And it was, of course, very much better than Bert's record of it, <laughs> which I eventually came to realise. But at that time, I wasn't aware of The Shadows as people. They'd just done this record. And I wasn't aware of their connection with Cliff Richards. He was just a singer that you saw on telly sometimes. It was probably a couple of years before I started seeing the Shadows on television. And by this time, Jet and Tony had already left. The drummer was Brian, and the bass guitarist was Licorice. I began to read about them in the music press and slowly turned into a Shadows fan, which, of course, I still am. Now, at that time, I thought Licorice looked particularly good on stage, and it was watching him that made me want to play bass instead of guitar. So, yes, that group, Hank, Bruce, Brian and Licorice to me was the first Shadows lineup I got to
1: know.
0: Notre premier disc Apache.
1: So before we get to our main feature this month, the album, Dance with the Shadows, we've got a single to discuss, The Rise and Fall of Flingle Bunt. I can't tell you how many times I've mispronounced that title, and it borders on profanity. This was recorded on February 25th, 1964, released in May of 64, written by the group, which at this time included John Rostel, And this was a very successful single, making it all the way to number five. And I know that this song was inspired by, or at least the title anyway, was inspired by gibberish spoken by the actor Richard O'Sullivan that amused the group.
2: That is absolutely right, yes. Um, While they were all filming um, a film which in the UK was called Wonderful Life, I'm not quite sure if it was called that everywhere in the world, that was where the name Flingle Bunt and another one, Squimby Nurox, both cropped up. And these were both the brainchilds of, um, of Richard O'Sullivan. And I don't quite know who they were or what they were, but these were non existent characters whom they referred to a lot. And when they titled this particular tune, The Rise and Fall of Legs Diamond became quite easily The Rise and Fall of Flingle Bunt.
1: Right. And it's a big part of the Shadow's Appeal, at least to me, this goon show type of humor, I guess you would call it. It is. Yeah, and far be it for me to make comparisons that don't actually exist, which I do all the time on this podcast, but I'm hearing a little bit of the melody of the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles record Shop Around in Flingle Bunt.
2: And then she said, just because
1: you become a young man now, it's still some."
2: I'd never thought of that. It's not surprising that it should resemble other numbers because it is a basic 12 bar with embellishment. And in fact, the story goes that it started out in the studio on the uh, 25th of February, as you say, um, that they were just jamming. And as the jamming took place, so the number took shape. And uh, Norrie Paramore, the recording manager, said, I think we better do this. Switched on the light. He came in on the piano at the beginning. You can just hear him. And uh, they did it. And I think they did it in one take.
1: Wow. You know, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something about this track that feels almost ahead of its time. Like it's signaling where music was gonna go later in 64 and into early 65. It, it feels like a turning point for the shadows. Well, the
2: arrival of John Rostill as bass player actually lifted the whole band a step because uh, compared with his two predecessors, he was a much more accomplished musician. And I know the Jet Harris lovers are gonna hate me for saying that. Um, <laughs> licorice locking on the other hand, told me he was brilliant. Anyway, I, w- I couldn't have given way to uh, to, to, to a better guy. Uh, John Roster was a real musician, and it shows in the amount of contribution he made to the composing that they did for the rest of the 1960s. But also, as a bass player, he just did so much more. If you listen to The Rise of Fall of Flingelbun, his bass part is by no means predominant. That's that's always the lead guitar with Hank Marvin. But the drums are there and the bass is doing things. Listen to it and you realize this guy is embellishing this tune. He's not just playing the basics.
1: You mentioned composing and John would go on to quite the songwriting career after The Shadows as well. So let's flip this record over and here's an unusual uh, circumstance. We've got a song written by Malcolm Addy and Norman Smith, so the EMI engineers are getting in on the action. It's a man's world, not to be confused with the James Brown number. It's a man's, man's, man's world. Recorded the same day. This, you know, it's a pleasant melody, and it's no, it's no A-side, that's for sure, but I do enjoy it.
2: So Manswell was written, as you say, by Malcolm Addy, who was the, at that time the main recording engineer for The Shadows, and Norman Smith, who was one of the recording engineers who worked with the Beatles in the early days. Uh, Norman Smith later had a few hit records of his own under the name Hurricane Smith. Would there suddenly be sunshine? Anyway, that's these two engineers getting together. They put together this tune, and it was recorded in the, what I will call the February sessions, because in February 1964, they had a major recording session, basically to make an album. And the album was going to be called Dance With The Shadows, and the producer, Nori Paramore, had basically populated it with a whole load of interesting tunes that he thought the Shadows' touch would embellish. And, it's a man's world was originally intended for that album but in the end they decided to put it on the back of single bun
1: well let's get into it let's talk about the album dance with the shadows which is an album you've loved for a long time for me i only heard this album in full in sequence just a few weeks ago i should explain Uh to the audience i may have explained this before because of european copyright laws Shadows music, or any music, prior to 1963 had fallen into the public domain in uh, Europe, and it's not supposed to be sold in the U.S., but of course those things do filter their way into the U.S., so I was very familiar with Shadows songs up till 1963. When we get into 1964 here, this is like a whole new world for me, and having heard this album just recently, I have to say, I would put this at a close second to the first Shadows album. It's that good.
2: Um, I would say that for me, this is my favorite Shadows album, and I've got them all. Um, <laughs> it's probably because it's the first one I bought, and I was very impressed with the versatility on it. Um, the interesting thing about listening to this is that this was the first time they had recorded with burns guitars instead of fenders and burns guitars don't sound the same and they are experimenting with the noises they can get out of those burns and i think this is a very very interesting demonstration of what those guitars can do in the sleeve notes on the original lp a guy called john friesen who was a great shadows and i wrote that um the burns sounded much fuller and i think that's true it does
1: Well, this was released concurrently with The Rise and Fall of Bunt, So this was also released May of 1964. And as you mentioned, Nori Paramore dipped into his bag of tricks and came up with all sorts of unusual selections for the group to record. And uh, right off the bat, we get (laughs) one of my favorite tracks on the album, the Shadows version of Chattanooga Choo Choo. Now this might seem like an unlikely song to cover it's I mean it stretches all the way back to it it, it was a big Glenn Miller hit written by Harry Warren and Mac Gordon. This was recorded in that active February, February 13th of 64. It's a great version, and much like the 1941 Glenn Miller original from the movie Sun Valley Serenade, the opening simulates a train barreling down the tracks. The shadows do a really good job capturing the same feel.
2: It's an excellent atmospheric opening number for an LP, as we used to call them. Um, it's one of the two Glenn Miller chucks on this uh, collection. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we play it to this day. And I do play in a Shadow-style band, and uh, we, we play it a lot.
1: I would imagine that maybe record buyers who were picking this up in 1964, they might have seen a title like Chattanooga Choo Choo and thought to themselves, oh no, you know, I don't know if I want to hear this. But they would have been, had they given it a chance, they would have been very pleasantly surprised because this is very uh courant.
2: Yeah, I think the the thing was that um, Nori Paramore, the A&R man, A&R means artists and repertoire, he manages the artists, Shadow's being... Uh, a significant uh, one of his artists and the repertoire what they're going to record and his job was to get together stuff that he thought he could sell on vinyl as it was in those days and make money out of it. and that was the commercial end of recording uh nori paramore was a, a very accomplished musician who, who was several years older than the shadows were and consequently his his knowledge of music went way back and i remember reading a newspaper criticism of the Dance with the Shadows album written clearly by someone who wasn't a Shadows fan saying, oh, this album is just full of show business horrors, (laughs) which I think is what you've got here. (laughs) But, 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 um, I don't think that is what will have sold the record. What will have sold the record was the name The Shadows, because at that time they were still absolutely top of the tree.
1: Well, I have heaps of respect for the big band era, so I wouldn't have been bothered at all. And yeah, they're covering... Some unusual selections, but at the same time, they've got their own compositions on this album, too. Track two, Blue Shadows, written by the group, but at this time, this is an older cut from 63. In true Shadows tradition, I have to say, I've learned this, you can't really look at the personnel on the cover and assume that that's who's on the record. (laughs) So here's one that's Marvin Welch, Bennett, and Locking, and it's a very convincing blues record i mean this hank is to me playing circles around a lot of other groups guitarists who were getting a lot of praise at that time
2: Yes, he is. Uh, Dance with the Shadows is a transition album. I think I would call it that. So was Out of the Shadows that came before it. Uh, Reason being, the transition was between two players. And in this instance, it was a transition between Licorice Locking, who is on three of the tracks, Three of the tracks were recorded about six months earlier, in August 1963. And then the concept of Dance With The Shadows is what they went into the studios to do in February 64. Basically, they ended up with needing to fill up the album with something else. And they had these three tracks from earlier on the shelf, so they put them in. And it's very interesting to hear the comparison, because it's The Shadows, but it doesn't sound
1: the same. But it works though It works in the context of this album There, there might be a couple songs here that don't work but um, okay. Track 3, Fandango Written by Frank Perkins and John Bradford This was February of 64 This is a, an older song from 1952 But once again we, we hear the group's affinity For a Spanish flavor
2: Yes, it's very nicely done there, and if you Google or YouTube Fandango, you will come across a version of it by a group called the Flea Wreckers, which I'd never heard of before, and it is quite clear to me listening to that, that that's the one that Norrie played them and said, let's see if we can do this. it up and making it more exciting is exactly what they did and Fandago is one of the top tracks on it.
1: I agree Track 4, this is my second favorite on the album it's the Shadows cover of Tonight boy this is a very of the moment pick because Leonard Bernstein is in the news with this movie that came out about his life, Maestro, written by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim I love the song from the musical West Side Story and I've heard dozens and dozens of people record versions of it Here, it's given that dreamy sleepwalk-slash-midnight treatment, and I think it really, really works. (music) ¶¶
2: It does. Uh, this is where, if they were on stage, Bruce would step forward to the microphone and say, Now we want to feature Hank. And the spotlight would go on to him, and the rest of the band would fade into the blackness behind. And you would see and hear him playing these soulful tunes. And tonight is an excellent example of that. Brilliant player, a very erratic player, actually. This is going off at a tangent. But I remember Jet Harris saying, who he was the original bass player of the band. He said, the man is a genius. Even his mistakes are in tune.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's great stuff. Uh, We'll move on to track five. That's the way it goes. Whoa, suddenly we've got vocals. Here we are. This is a Welch and Marvin composition. The Everly Brothers are back together again. Frank Ifield recorded a version of this song before the shadows did. That's the
0: way it goes. Whoa, whoa, yeah. That's the way it goes. Dummy do, dummy do. And that's the way it goes. Fairy tales can happen. Why don't
1: it's also one of two songs on this album that the swingin blue jeans recorded a version of But as for the Shadows version, I like it. It's pleasant. You know, whenever Hank and Bruce do Don and Phil, I'm here for it. But I don't know. It it, it feels like it doesn't really belong on the album. Like it should have just been a standalone single.
2: This is the sound of Marvin Welsh voice blending. They were so good at singing together. Personally, I've never particularly liked Hank's voice on its own. Um, Bruce, I think, is a slightly pleasanter voice to listen to on its own, but the pair of them together, they really, each covers the other's weakness, I suppose you could say, and that close harmony is a strong feature of a lot of the early Cliff Richard records, where he's singing out front and Hank and Bruce are right there behind him, painting in the canvas, if you like. And you mentioned the Everly Brothers, and of course, when Hank and Bruce first went to London to seek their fame and fortune. They did actually start as a vocal duo and very much a sort of uh, Everly's pairing. They did a lot of that kind of stuff. So it's not inappropriate that they should still tend in that direction when when singing. And I think that these are probably I, I, I sense from what you said that you weren't too keen on them. but I think these two numbers are actually compared with other stuff they've sung since.
1: They're pretty good. Well, we'll see when we get to the second one. I think this is the stronger of the two on here. But we'll move on to number six, cut six, which is Big B, written by Brian Bennett. February 25th, 1964. It's a sequel, in a way, to Little B. I guess it was inevitable that we would get Big B at some point. It's another drum showcase for Brian.
2: completely different. Little B is a tour de force. It goes on for about five minutes and they throw everything at it. And uh, it's Brian, who at that time had only just recently joined the band, showing what he could do and boy, could he hit those skins, you know. He he really was uh, so energetic, and it was a fantastic number to do on stage as well as on record. They started doing it when Jet Harris was on bass, they continued to do it when Licorice Locking was on bass, and the recording of Little B features Licorice. Big B, uh, the only thing it has in common, really, is the title, and it's Brian Bennett again. But this is a much tighter, more melodic tune. There's less duration to it. And the drumming is much more precise. And the interesting thing about the drum solo in this, to me, is you can actually sing it.
1: Yeah, a big attraction for me when it comes to Shadows music, it's always melodic. And I'm not a player, so all I have to go on Is melody and arrangement. And I guess it fits in with the Shadows' sense of humor that the track titled Big B would actually be shorter than Little B. Track seven on the album, here's your second Glenn Miller uh, cut, and it's In the Mood, written by Joe Garland and Andy Razoff, I think is how you pronounce the last name. Recorded on that very productive day of February 25th, 1964. What more can you say about In the Mood? It's a big band classic, Glenn Miller's recording is. And famously, Peter Sellers wanted the Glenn Miller record to play during his funeral when his uh, casket was lowered into the ground. (laughs) ¶¶ The Shadows version is good, but I don't think it's nearly as good as their version of Chattanooga Choo Choo.
2: I agree with that. I think Chattanooga is the better of the two. In the Mood, again, is something that our band plays quite often. Um, I like the little twiddly bits that John Rostill puts in on the bass uh, just to fill the gaps. Uh, That's what he was so good at. Um, It's a a jolly number, and um, it's a different rhythm from the original Glenn Miller. But it works, I
1: think. Yeah, it seems based on the 1959 recording by Ernie Fields and his orchestra. So we'll move on to cut eight, which is The Lonely Bull. And this was recorded on February 11th, 1964, composed by Saul Lake. Now, I don't know how big the 1962 record by the Tijuana Brass was in the UK, Mm. but it's certainly one of the most famous instrumentals of the 60s in the U.S. It peaked at number six on the Hot 100 And the Shadows version is good, but I'm just so accustomed to the Tijuana brass recording. It's like a piece of the architecture in this country. So when I hear the Shadows version, I just keep expecting brass.
2: But this is a tune that's not only done by Herb Alpert, the Tijuana Brass, but also by the Ventures. One might well wonder whether the Ventures version influenced The Shadows. I don't think it did. I think that the one that drove it was the Herb Albert. It may not have been particularly famous over here in the UK, but Norrie Paramore will have known it. Norrie Paramore will have heard it and thought, oh, we could do something with this.
1: Well, again, it has that Spanish flavor that the Shadows really excel in. So it's a natural for them to record. Cut nine on the album is the song Dakota, written by Bob Allen. And once again, this is one of those older cuts from August of 63. It's great to hear licorice locking on that harmonica. This is uh, another highlight on the album for me.
2: Yes, indeed, it, it is. Um, it is a much older recording. I mean, only six months, but in terms of the stages through which the shadow sound went, it definitely belongs to the previous chapter. Um, but yeah, it was. I think it was a Tommy Riley harmonica tune. That's probably the one I would have heard most. But uh, Licorice actually is on the record twice because in Blackpool, where they were doing a summer season, Norrie Paramore and his gang went up to Blackpool and set up uh, a sort of mobile recording studio to do these numbers. And um, they recorded the backing track without the harmonica with Licorice playing bass. And then a few weeks later, back in London, they added the harmonica part again with Licorice playing over his, his own recording of the rest of it and uh, that's how it came into being and actually if you listen to the stereo version of it and put your headphones on you can actually hear the door opening as he comes in <laughs> and, and a bit of breathing you know but th- that's sort of esoteric stuff but uh, yeah it's a good number uh, i have had the privilege and pleasure of working in latter years many times with licorice he was a great guy for coming around the shadows guitar clubs and he would not only perform for everybody, but he would also play along with everybody. And uh, I thought, well, thats he's the bass player, so I won't be getting to do much because I'm a bass player. Uh, but actually, <laughs> I, I got to back him on Dakota because someone had to do it, and I knew what he played. I played the same notes, and it seemed to work.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it was a big thrill for you. Yes. Uh, track 10, we're back in the cinema. It's a theme song to the 1964 Ken Russell film, his directorial debut, actually, a movie called French Dressing. And it's an original composition by Brian Bennett, a portent of things to come. I went on YouTube and watched a few clips of it, and like all Ken Russell movies, it's a little unusual.
2: I will be out of this dress in a second.
0: French dressing, a delicious mixture of sauce, and good old-fashioned cheek. Starring James Booth, Roy Kinnear, Alita Norton, Marisa Mell, in a film that explores every avenue of fun and finds it in the escapist picture of the year. And now, back to nature with Mademoiselle Francois Fayot. Come to Gauntlet and get back to nature on the nudist beach. Come to Gormley for the film festival of the year. Oh, what is this? The Golden Cockle. Take it. It's yours.
2: Excuse me, sir.
0: French dressing. It's another kind of summer holiday from Elstree's master chefs.
2: These boys really worry about cinema. Good night. I don't know the film at all. I didn't know of the film connection until very recently. But as a tune, it rocks along nicely. Uh, it is very much the earlier version of the band with licorice uh, on bass. It's, it's a good, jolly little tune. Uh, nothing particularly special about it to my ears, but it certainly fits on the album.
1: It's nice leading into the next song, which is another movie theme, The High and the Mighty. This was recorded February 18th, 1964. This is a Dmitry Tjomkin composition, and this is from the 1954 film of the same name. It was the first ever all-star disaster movie before they became in vogue in the 1970s. So this one starred John Wayne and Robert Stack, Phil Harris. I mean, they had a cast of thousands. The score won an Academy Award, and the theme song also won an Academy Award for Song of the Year. And you can't tell me that somebody, I don't know if it's Nori, I don't know if it's The Shadows, but somebody in the studio had to have been a film buff.
0: One by one, they boarded the plane, the most bizarre group of people ever thrown together by fate on the most exciting adventure that ever spanned an ocean. There was Dan, who had used up his nine lives and was starting on number 10. May, who could talk to a man without saying a word. Lydia, who was as low as high society can get. Sullivan, whose nerves of steel were beginning to rust. Sally, who lived in a world of whistles. Ed, who had taught himself to face disaster with a smile. Party, a heart full of courage wrapped up in a bundle of nerves. Childs, a wealthy collector of other men's wives. Flaherty, who thought he could hide his fears in a bottle. Agnew, a coward, until he held a gun in his hand. Spalding, a right girl who had to be nice to some wrong people. Yes, the brash and the brave, big-timers and two-timers, the chaste and the cheats, morning glories and nighttime women, suddenly transformed by a single stroke of fate into people with all pretense gone and every violent emotion turned loose. Lobby, take your final position. I'm going to take her down. Wait a few more minutes. Captain. Do as I say. But it looks like... Do as I say. Give him a few more minutes. I've already waited too long. Here we go. No, we don't.
1: the shadows version of the theme song to the high and mighty is not only a standout on this album it's i think a standout in their career i love this recording if this had been a single i predict this would have been a hit
2: Absolutely beautiful. If you want uh, the archetypal rendition of the Burns guitar lineup playing a sumptuous number like that, that is the one to listen to. It is beautiful. It's understated, but every guy has his part in it, and um, it's not played much in the clubs. Actually, I've had I've had the pleasure of backing it a few times, but it, it's not one of the most commonly played numbers now. But, oh, I think it's quality. And as you say, um, Dimitri Chumkin is um, a very fine composer. And the fact that it's all movies, I think you can safely assume that Laurie Paramore was behind all this. He will have been the guy who assembled the list of tracks, and, and that will have been one of the ones he thought, you you can do this, lads.
1: The next cut is the second and last of the vocal cuts on the album, Don't It Make You Feel Good, written by Marvin and Welch. I, I don't know if I like it as much as the other one. I know that the swing and Blue Jeans, as I mentioned, also covered this, but they did a pretty much identical version of it.
2: You're sitting sipping coffee and your girl walks in. Don't it make you feel good? You go to a dance and the music swings. The band keeps on playing and the singer sings. Don't it make you feel good? Don't it make you feel good? Your legs
0: are moving anytime the music swings. Don't it make you feel good? To go to a dance with your girl by your side instead of sitting home by the fire side.
1: Even though I don't think this is a particularly great song, it is worth noting that here we are in 1964 and a Mersey Beat group is recording songs written by Hank and Bruce, which just goes to show you that there's some respect toward them.
2: Yes, I I agree with you. I think... um... It's an okay song, but that's the way it goes. Is a better one. And as you said earlier, uh, that was recorded by Frank Ifield a few years before. And of course, Nori Paramore also was um, Frank Ifield's London-based recording manager. So there was history to that.
1: Well, Nori is uh, a pivotal person again on the next cut, which I hope I'm going to pronounce correctly as Zambesi. Zambesi, I think we would say. Zambesi. It's a river in Africa. Ah, Okay. I learned so much on these things. It's like a a whole history lesson going here. And this was written by, I'm probably going to murder these names, uh, Nico Carstens and Anton DeWall. Uh, If you say so. Okay, (laughs) sounds good to me. And Nori Paramore's orchestra recorded a version of this in 1956. So that's undoubtedly why this is here. But this is another winner. I mean, this is an album filled with winners. It is.
2: Yes, the recording that he made earlier was with a trumpeter called Eddie Calvert, who was, um, you know, if you were a trumpeter fan, he was one of the big names at the time. Uh, His version of Zambezi is the one that I already knew when I first heard this. But what The Shadows have done with it um, has made it completely different, and you don't miss the trumpet to me. And also, it is notable for, this is the first time John Rostill gets a chance to do a bass guitar solo. It's not one of those improvised bass guitar solos. Basically, he's playing the tune with a few embellishments, but it shows you, aye, this guy can play, and that was to be proved in forthcoming recordings over the next few years.
1: Yeah, it's it's really strong it's almost sad that we get to the end here which is uh, Temptation February 11th 1964 Nacio Herb Brown and Arthur Freed and we've talked about this song before on this podcast because Cliff Richard recorded a version of it in 1961 Born to be kissed I can't resist
0: You are Temptation And I
1: This Shadows version with Bruce's galloping rhythm guitar is the superior version of the song in my book. Neither of them touch Bing Crosby's original 1933 recording, but if I had to choose between Cliff or The Shadows, I'm going with The Shadows on this one.
2: Probably the version of it that we would know best here in the UK would be that by the Everly Brothers. I think that is what influenced them to do their own version. And actually, the Shadows recorded "Temptation" twice at two different times, but this is the original one in 1964. Uh, as you say, yeah, Bruce is a real tour de force on the on the rhythm guitar there, and a most unusual chord pattern. Actually, uh, it took me a long time when I used to play rhythm guitar to work out what he was doing. Uh, it wasn't a difficult thing to finger once I figured it out (laughs) but it took a while to work it out but yeah it's 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 a great number it's a lovely number they then did it again umpteen years later with um, a different lineup of people in the studio and made a disco version of it which was quite fun in its own way but sounds very dated now this 1964 version on the other hand to me is as good as it ever was
1: well for this album to come out as it did in may of 1964 and we we all know what was happening in music it was like a whole new the new guard you know coming along in music yes but despite that competition this was also a hit album when it was released
2: oh it was it was and i think the two songs which i i sensed you weren't that keen on but they were if you like um a nod in the direction of the burgeoning Mersey sound Beatles, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, all those other bands who had exploded onto the music scene. And basically, to me, that was them saying, yeah, we can do that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And they could. They could. Well, this has been great uh, talking about this album. I hope everybody goes back and revisits it. Or if you're like me, you maybe haven't heard it before until very recently. And uh, you'll be... Well, you shouldn't be pleasantly surprised because the shadows are, are quality, as we've demonstrated over these past 32 episodes. So, Ian, if people wanted to catch up with your activities, shadows related or not, or else, where would they go to do that?
2: The website that I help to run is called uh, www.shadowmusic, one word, shadowmusic.co. Dot uk, And if you look at that, you will see contributions by several of the people who've helped you with your podcast. And if you use the search facility on that, just any bit of trivia you might want to know about, uh, you'll probably find because it's been added to over well over 10 years. And uh, if you like, it is a sort of archive of Shadow's history. Mm-hmm.
1: Once again, I want to thank Ian so much for appearing on the show. And we are endeavoring to be back next month talking about the film Wonderful Life. Until then, make sure to send me an email. It's We Say Yeah podcast at gmail.com. Join us on Facebook. It's We Say Yeah. That's our page. And follow us on X Twitter. (laughs) I don't know what to call it. I really don't, because it seems like culturally we've decided not to call it X. We're still calling it Twitter. And I just can't help but call it Twitter no matter what. Follow us on Twitter. You know where it is. We say yeah pod. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs)